I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Bill Russell, Legend. He was unapologetically himself. A stand-up man. The smartest player that ever played the game. The Big Bang. We're never going to see a winner like that again. It's no conversation. Today, we're talking to director Sam Pollard. With his revolutionary defense, Bill Russell changed the game of basketball. He was a two-time NCAA champion and Olympic gold medalist before joining the Celtics in 1956. He won more rings than he had fingers, winning a record 11 NBA championships and cementing Boston as a dynasty. But throughout the 1960s, Russell grappled with his place in sports and in society, being among the first athletes to demonstrate in the civil rights movement and against the Vietnam War. He fought racism on the court and in his hometown. His contributions to the game and to equality made him more than a superstar. They made Bill Russell a legend. But conversely, that made me have more to lose in the sense of, in the sense of what they were talking about. But it was nothing to lose to me because if I don't have my manhood, I don't have anything. And I'm joined now by director Sam Pollard. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Yeah, my pleasure, Rebecca. Nice meeting you. So growing up, Sam, did you have the Bill Russell versus Wilt Chamberlain debate with your friends? We definitely did. It was <laughs> always a big discussion. Who was the better center? And I always was on the side of Bill Russell because I just thought his of, his defensive skills were phenomenal. Even though Bill, Will Chamberlain was, three, you know, what, three inches taller than him and probably had 30 pounds on him, I thought that what was, what was amazing about Bill Russell was his ability to contain Will Chamberlain to the point where his teammates on the Celtics could get the ball, get down to the other end of the court and score baskets and win the game. Because what Red Auerbach always said, wasn't about how many points an individual player scored. It was about the team winning. And the Celtics understood that. And Red Auerbach understood that every individual on his team, be it Bill Russell or Tommy Heinsohn or John Havlicek or Sam Jones or Sap Sanders or Bob Cousy, he knew that all of these pieces together could make for a phenomenal team. And we see it. 11 championships in 13 seasons. No one. No one in NBA history will ever match that or surpass that. Yeah, I have to be honest with you. You know, you talk about sort of the dynasty of that team being like the greatest sports dynasty in, you know, the history of professional sports. And it is pretty astonishing uh, what the Celtics accomplished. But, you know, this is an era of athletes today who fans know by reputations or their records, but, you know, never saw the play day to day of Mickey Mantle or Johnny Unitas. So besides the rings, you know, what do you think the average 2023 sports fan knows about Bill Russell? I don't think the average 23-year-old knows much about Bill Russell, and that's why I'm <laughs> glad that these two films have been made. It'll be a great introduction 
to one a man who, along with the other man, Will Chamberlain, basically set the standard and the tempo for what is today's NBA. I mean, most young people now, if you ask them who's the greatest of all time, we have this debate. They'll usually say either LeBron James or Michael Jordan. But people, this will give them an opportunity to understand that there are probably two other men who could be on that list, and that's Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain. Were you surprised that some of the younger players like Stephen Curry were so familiar with the nuances of Bill Russell's game? Because you can find highlights, but really hard to find like whole games to watch. What impressed me was, and I think this, this, this also goes to Bill Russell's longevity. He was a man who years after he played would go to these NBA finals. So these younger players, the Chris Pauls, the Steph Currys, the Jason Tatums, they got to see him in the flesh, which then for some of them, specifically like Steph Curry, got him to do the kind of research and deep dive and understanding why Bill Russell was so important. I don't think anybody knew what type of player he was going to be. I don't even think he knew what type of player he was going to be. He was blessed with some physical attributes that he didn't really understand what he, what he had and how to harness it all. The fact that he was at these NBA finals all the time, the fact that they named the award after him, says a lot for these younger players to say, we don't really know as much about him as we know about Jordan or LeBron, but now we've seen him in the flesh. Some of us will do our research and learn why he's so important. Because we all tend to have short attention spans when it comes to history. People don't really like to think beyond their little world. And this, these two films will give them an opportunity to do this, just that, look beyond their world. But I venture to guess like not a lot of people knew that Bill Russell was a world-class high jumper in college, right? Well, I didn't, I didn't know that either. <laughs> I thought I knew a lot about Bill Russell, but that's one of the wonderful things about making documentaries. You learn new things. You know, I didn't know that he competed until I read the books and started doing the research that he, one of the, his major competitors in, when he was in athletics in the high jump was Mr. Johnny Mathis, who I only think of as being this great vocalist. So you learn so much when you do these films. You learn so much about Bill and what he thinks and what he thought about. That's why it was so wonderful that one of my producers, Ruben Atlas, you know, really, really pushed to have us use words from Bill's books because that would give us more insight in understanding how complicated he was as both a man and as an athlete. Yeah. You know, I keep thinking about the different coaches that he had. And I, and one of the ways he obviously changed the game was his approach to defense. Can you imagine what the game would be like today if Bill Russell had just followed along with his college coach's advice and just played traditional defense and just never strayed <laughs> from what his college coach had told him to do? It wouldn't be the game it is today. So we're getting that huddle, and my coach says, you can't play defense like that. A good defensive player never leaves his feet. And you were jumping up the block shots. I can't play that way. So I go back out and I try it. And the guy shoots layups three times in a row. So I went back to playing the way I knew how. I mean, think about it. In the film, Nelson George says, when Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson came into the game, they brought to the game of basketball in the NBA the black athletic aesthetic, which meant that they had a different way of playing. They had a different way of understanding how to play offense, understanding how to play defense. And you see it today when you watch NBA players, you know. I mean, these basketball players bring a unique perspective on how to approach the game. 
how to play the game, how to strategize, how to shoot, how to defend. They understand the way to play the game, but it's different. And they've raised the bar. So Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain raised the bar. And then Magic Johnson raised the bar. Oscar Robson raised the bar. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar raised the bar. Michael Jordan, you know, Scottie Pippen raised the bar. LeBron James raised the bar. Steph Curry raised the bar. You see, it's the black athlete in basketball is like a, is, is a treasure. Hmm. So I want to talk about this other aspect of Bill Russell's life, which you dive really deeply into early in his professional career. Very early, he begins taking steps toward activism. And the first big headline grabbing incident came in Lexington, Kentucky. Can you remind the listeners what happened there? They were going to play an exhibition game. The Celtics were going to play an exhibition game in Lexington, Kentucky. And they were staying in a hotel. And Lexington, back in that period, was segregated. And they went, the black players, a few of the black players, Bill and others, went down to eat in the restaurant. And they refused service because Negroes could not eat with white people in the restaurant. Bill Russell basically said to his black teammates, we should boycott the game. You know, initially Red Auerbach went to the proprietor and said, they are members of my team. And the proprietor said, okay, they can, they can eat in the restaurant. And then when they went back down to the restaurant, <laughs> they were asked if they were members of the team. They lied. Said, no, we're not. And they were, they were, you know, they were prohibited from sitting in the restaurant again. And they basically, the black players decided not to play. I, I told Red, I wanted the Celtics to play the game. And to understand clearly, the black guy said, we're not going to play under these conditions. I called the guys on the other team and said, the black guys on the Celtics are not going to play tonight. And so all the black guys on the other team, they decided not to play also. And that shows you that Bill Russell was going to always stand up for what he thought was right, no matter what the consequences. And, you know, there could have been consequences. I mean, back in that period, the consequences could have been, as Kenny Smith says, you could lose your life. So we've heard multiple black athletes, contemporary black athletes, describe Boston today as a very racist city to play in. And I'm curious at that time, you know, we were familiar with violent scenes from the segregated South, fire hoses, dogs, beatings. But Martin Luther King and his wife actually met in Boston. Boston saw itself as this very progressive city. The Russell family moves to this allegedly liberal, liberal forward thinking city. Did they think they were moving to a progressive place and, and leaving some of this stuff behind? Well, I think, you know, the thing that, you know, for many African-Americans in that period, the idea of moving north was to, to escape the horrors of segregation and, and possible death in the South, you know, in places like Georgia or Mississippi or South Carolina, you know, or Louisiana. And Bill, like others, you know, he came from, Oakland, which has probably de facto segregation, but he felt like living in Boston would be a, a different world. But, you know, the thing to remember is that the turmoil and the racism that was so publicized in the South in the 50s and 60s existed in the North, not just in Boston, but in Chicago, in New York, in Baltimore. So I think the thing that shocked Bill and his family was when they moved to Reading, they thought that, sure, it would have been difficult to live there because you're black, living in a white community, but they didn't realize how difficult and horrible it was, you know, particularly when someone broke into their house and defecated at their family bed and 
wrote on their walls and destroyed the house. People uh, smashed his trophies. They defecated in my parents' bed. I was shocked. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know how racist the town was. That Bill and the family had to go through. It's, it's heartbreaking. I mean, that kind of vandalism was horrific and horrible. You know, and that's why, I mean, one of the reasons Bill Russell had a major chip on his shoulder about the city of Boston. As he says in his books and, you know, and said in, in, in the media, you know, I didn't play for Boston. I played for the Boston Celtics because he loved being a Celtic, but he didn't love playing for the city of Boston. And the other thing to remember, too, is that without Bill Russell as the linchpin, I don't think the Celtics would have become the dynasty that they became, hmm. winning 11 championships in 13 seasons. But even with him being sort of the one who led them to these championships, when he was playing with Bob Cousy, many of the fans of Boston saw Bob Cousy as the man. Right. As Bob Cousy says in the film, before Bill Russell came on the scene, I was the man. When he came on the scene, Bill Russell became the man, but not to a lot of those Celtics fans. <laughs> right. You know, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, Red Auerbach put on the court a black all-starting team, right? And this was like a brand new thing. It seems like he was very progressive in this way in, in the league. But I wonder how much he was inspired by Bill Russell. I mean, he gets a lot of the credit for that. But Bill Russell was like pushing a lot of boundaries, too. And I wonder what that relationship was like. Yeah, but here's two things to remember. Red Auerbach didn't put five black players on a team to make a statement. <laughs> he put five black players on the court. Because those were the five players that he knew he thought could win. Yeah. Yeah. Red Auerbach wasn't, he wasn't that politically progressive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think he just understood, all he understood was about how to win. Mm. If that meant he could put five mules on the court and they could win, <laughs> he would put them on the court. So th that we should, we should really understand that. Yeah. I think the thing that's special though about the relationship between Red and Bill is that Red could see in Bill the ability and the skills that he thought would be that extra something that would make that team go from just being a good team to a great team. And he saw that with a lot of other players too. Take each person's individual skill and use it to build and solidify the team. It was about the team. And you know, it's in, it's in, you know, and Bill became a team player. And when you see that footage of the home movie footage of Bill and the other teammates having fun at that party, you see that spirit decor, that sense of team com camaraderie that's so special that Red basically pushed. He pushed that. You know, he understood that you're not going to win if you got if you just focus on each individual player, but understand that each individual player should bring something to the team. That's what made their relationship special. And I think for Bill Russell, Red was the only coach that he ever had that really understood him. Hmm. Well, next to Red Auerbach, you know, the other really important professional relationship you focus on uh, in your films is his relationship with Wilt Chamberlain. But that relationship seems kind of complicated. Can you talk about that? Yeah, because here, here are two guys who are competitors playing against each other. But when the Celtics would come to Philly, Wilt would invite Bill over to the house for dinner, and his mother would always say at the end of dinner, don't beat up on my son. <laughs> and then they would have to go out on the court and be combatants, you know. And Bill Russell understood that in reality, you know, Rebecca, he could not play Will Chamberlain physically. You know, he could not play Will Chamberlain. But mentally, 
he understood that he had to contain Will Chamberlain to such a degree that would give his other teammates on the Celtics the ability to score points and win games because he was a team player again. Will Chamberlain, his biggest sort of asset and his biggest liability, that he could play and beat anybody by himself. And he didn't think like a team player, you know. That's why you don't see him having 11. He didn't have 11 rings. Bill Russell understood he was a team player. So it wasn't about being mano a mano against Will Chamberlain. It was about being Bill Russell against Will Chamberlain and helping the team win the games. Hmm. We see a lot of hype about rivalries, like player-on-player rivalries today. And I'm wondering how the fan base then, I mean, you talked about how you, you know, talked about it with your friends. I'm wondering about how the fan base then perceived this rivalry and these two men. How did they talk about them? Well, in my neighborhood, in neighborhoods I knew about, it was always the same discussion. Who was the best player? Mm. You know, who could score more points? Who could rebound more? Who could defend better? You know? And, you know, if you loved Will Chamberlain, he was the better player. If you loved Bill Russell, he was the better player. Bill may have been the superstar of his time, but he approached it as if he was just one of five guys on that court. And Will was just there like, I'm Will Chamberlain, I'm here, I'll score 100 points. You guys do what you want, I'll, I'll, I'll win it for you. There was a totally different approach. That was a discussion. It was sort of the same kind of dialogue that I really was into in the 80s when Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Who was the better player? Yeah. Was it Magic or was it Larry? And then, you know, you get into the 90s and then it's Michael Jordan against everybody, mm. <laughs> you know. And then LeBron comes along. With, and the discussion for LeBron, in my, from my perspective, is which team was he the best player with as a player? What was he was the best? I, I contend when he was with the Miami Heat, that's when he was the best. Yeah. For me. It's an interesting parallel you keep like bringing up Jordan is that Jordan had Phil Jackson, who also understood the power of a team and empowering each player to like do their own thing. And I kept thinking about that, that, you know, that dynasty of uh, Jordan's team and like the Bulls in that era and the Celtics like that seems to be a common thread. Right. Like the, the power of getting the right people together and letting them and playing to their strengths. That's a common thread. The only difference is how many rings did the, the Bulls exactly. win? <laughs> exactly. So Russell didn't deny the perception of him as standoffish, and he even wrote an article called I Owe the Public Nothing. You know, I was uh, equally surprised, but also really tickled that he refused to sign autographs. At one point, he just stopped doing it ever. Um, can you talk about that? Well, I think he felt like, you know, nobody was looking at him. They just wanted something with a piece of paper with his name on it. And he felt that wasn't that wasn't important. It was more important if someone came up to him and wanted to have a conversation, you know, to get an autograph. Now, when I mentioned this to Steph Curry in the interview that I did with Steph, Steph didn't understand why Bill wouldn't sign because he felt he sees his responsibility as a player is to connect to his fans. So he always signs autographs, but Bill didn't see it that way. And even with his own teammates, like Satch Sanders asked him many, many times to sign autographs, and Bill would say no. His statement was, Satch, we spend a lot of time together. We go out together. You know I don't sign autographs. I said, I'll kill this guy. I said, you got to be kidding me, Russ. And Chris Paul tells his story in the film where he, he went up to Bill and asked Bill for an autograph. Bill said no. He thought he was joking. He went back and Bill said no again. He said, what? He couldn't believe it. You know, so Bill was a man who's, you know, who, let's say he, he listened to his own drummer. 
you know, and he was going to do things his way. He didn't want to have someone have a piece of paper and says, Bill Russell, that didn't mean anything to him. To me, if he, for him, if he had a conversation with somebody, Larry Bird says this, that was probably more important than an autograph. I kept finding myself wondering, you know, it's like an expectation of players now. They have this fan engagement, you know, especially in the era of, you know, social media, post-game interviews, all the stuff, too, that they're like contractually obligated to do, um, too. I wonder how Bill Russell would fare uh, today, like in the in the digital world and everything that's expected of players now. Do you think he'd be able to to do it? I think he would have been fine. Yeah. I still wouldn't have signed other grass. <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, there's certain things you can get away with when you're a star that other stars can't get away with. Yeah, I mean, I do love the two sides of Russell that you show us, you know, his intensity on the court and then this incredible guffawing laugh. It's a cackle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's arrogant as can be. You know, he's Bill Russell. But he could also be that crazy guy who laughs and jokes with you. It's the same person, though, right? He's the same guy. But, you know, it just, it was an opportunity to see different aspects of Bill Russell. And I always feel that when you're doing these documentaries, if you can have an opportunity to show the sort of what I call the different dimensions of a human being, that makes it even more interesting to watch as a film. Yeah. So I want to ask you some creative questions about your approach to making this documentary. Today, if you wanted archival footage of Michael Jordan, you know, ESPN could spin up thousands of clips in an instant. And before watching your films, I had hardly seen any clips of Bill Russell or Bob Cousy or Jerry West. Was there a lot to work with? Tremendous amount. More than you can imagine. I mean, the big difference is that we had a wonderful archival team led by a woman named Helen Russell who did a really great job in finding all this material. And the thing that, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing that you realize is how all this stuff was shot. I mean, you know, nowadays when you watch all these sports shows or games, you see multiple cameras being used. You get the wide shot, you get the medium shot, you get the close-up, you get the different angles. The thing that you didn't have in the 50s and the 60s, you usually just had one or two cameras. You know, you only saw wide shots. So that was a little bit of a challenge, but there was lots of stuff. And, you know, and it was, you know, and luckily it was all being documented. It's amazing to me when I watch documentaries like yours, how precisely players remember specific plays from games they played decades and decades and decades ago. Jerry, Jerry West's intensity describing his games against Bill Russell was like unbelievable. Were you surprised by like the specificity of his recollections? What surprised me was not so much his specificity, but his still, the the feeling, the the disappointment and frustration (laughs) he had at losing to the Celtics time after time after time. How could anyone even think of something so stupid to put those balloons up there? And here he is, a man in his, what, late 70s, early 80s, still feeling that. That's, That's what surprised me. They're still holding on to that pain. That happened when he was a young man in his 20s. Mm. And for listeners who don't know, Jerry West is the man inside the NBA logo. He modeled for that image. So, like, it's not like he doesn't have a legacy in the NBA, but his memory is still about the balloons being up there in the ceiling and how stupid that was. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Stay with him. So you had two really accomplished actors providing narration in your films. You had Corey Stoll, who a lot of uh, people know from House of Cards and Billions. Russell tried to find solace from the nation's violent racial fissures. 
Not simply in playing the game, but in ritualizing winning. And you had Emmy and Tony Award winner Jeffrey Wright. Of course, he was in Westworld and Angels in America. There were few things white people could do without revealing prejudice that was offensive to me. I spent a lot of time trying to combat bias in all forms. I was always on defense, just like in basketball. I ached for some offense. I've always wondered, um, what is it like to direct narrators, especially actors, who are doing narration in a documentary? Well, you know, know, in all honesty, you know, Rebecca, it's pretty easy because (laughs) actors are very giving, you know, and they're very and they're always looking to be directed. And if you walk into the room with them and you are very clear about what your, your intent is and what you're looking for, they'll give it to you. You know, if you walk in the room confused and not sure about what you want, then they can be difficult. But both of these men are pros, absolute pros. So we came in with both. We had two sessions each with each of these actors and they came in and they were consummate professionals, consummate professionals. So Russell was an artist who had this ability to visualize the game and its plays very mathematically. Can you talk about how you wanted to convey that visually in your films? Well, that was the challenge. We figured out we had to do something. And again, I'm going to really give a shout out to Ruben Atlas, my producer. He was the one who thought about, let's try some animation to help visualize and tell this. So we hired this company to come up with some schematics. And we talked about the approach and physically and visually how it should look. It was a little bit of trial and error until we got got to the point where we were satisfied. Because we wanted people to understand that playing basketball is not just about the physical part of the game. It's about the mental part of the game. It's about the understanding of logistics and, and physics in playing basketball. And we wanted to show that Bill Russell and his teammate from his days at USF, Casey Jones, were rocket scientists in this, this phrase that they used in understanding where to position themselves as players to get the ball from the center at the back end of the court all the way down to the next, you know, on the, when they do the fast break. It was important to be able to do it in a way that people could see it and understand it. I think your visuals in doing that, for me, underlines, like, my very strong feeling that I've had, you know, throughout my life that basketball players really have the most demanding athletic job in professional sports, and they probably are, in my opinion, like the best athletes in professional sports. They're doing all of that and running <laughs> the entire time that they're doing it. And the pace of play never stops. It's not like they're stopping and conferring, you know, and then, you know, or standing at bat for, you know, a whole minute waiting for a pitch. It's it's really astonishing uh, what these players are doing all of the time. Well, it's really understanding that it's just the best what you just said, Rebecca. It's not just about taking the ball shooting it and getting the basket. It's about how you get from one end of the court to the other with your teammates against an opposing team of five other players and the strategies you use to be able to get the ball up and into the basket. So one thing I didn't know was that Bill Russell was asked to be on stage during Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, but he declined, thinking he wasn't worthy of that kind of spotlight. Can you talk about that? What does that say about him? Well, that just shows that he was a man who understood. He wasn't, he, he, he wasn't as important as Dr. King, and he didn't feel like he needed to be as important as Dr. King to be up on the stage. Just to be at the march was important enough. 
you know, just to, he didn't have to be front and center. You know, he could be a part of it. I mean, for him to be one of the people at this at the Cleveland Summit in '67, that was an important statement. He didn't have to be the center of attention. You know, so I, I just think he understood that his work off the court was vitally important, but he didn't have to shine and be the person that people would sort of pay attention to. He wanted to be there and do his thing, but he wanted to do it in a way that was respectful to all the other players who were really more major players in these particular moments. So for Bill Russell and other athletes like Muhammad Ali, you know, athletics and activism and, you know, with the Vietnam War, like all these things kind of came together. And Muhammad Ali obviously refused to comply with the draft and, and Bill Russell uh, sort of came to his side on that. Can you talk about that moment? Can you talk about the Cleveland Summit since you just brought it up? Well, the Cleveland Summit was an opportunity that was put together by Jim Brown. And he brought together all these phenomenal athletes from basketball and football to sit down with Ali and have Ali articulate why he had refused to be signed up for the draft. For these athletes to understand where he was coming from and understand what they what they thought, you know, their perspective might be after that discussion. And I think that's something that was really important in respect of being respectful to who Ali was and what his what he, what he felt his beliefs meant for him. And they went there to listen. And they came away thinking, okay, we've heard what he said. He's done the right thing. So Jim Brown, you know, who was a great athlete himself with the Cleveland Browns, brought together all these athletes that included Bill Russell to sit and listen to Ali and understand where Ali was coming from. Hmm. And after that meeting, they all supported what Ali was doing. Hmm. To re-energize his interest in basketball, Bill Russell does eventually take on this rare position of player coach when Red Auerbach steps away from the coaching position. He is the first black man in any professional sport to take on this coaching role. And at the announcement event, the press was focused on uh, this question of whether or not there'd be this, quote, reverse discrimination <laughs> against white players. And that, to me, was a shocking and racist question. But wasn't it also this, like, ironic recognition of the actual discrimination against black players that they were facing in this sport? It was, but uh, but it was still a shock. I mean, they wouldn't ask, and Bill says it, they wouldn't have asked a white coach that question. Right. I mean, they had never had asked a white coach that, that question, right? They never asked right? a white coach that question. And, and, you know, Bill's response to it was the right one, you know. Can you do the job impartially without any racial prejudice in reverse? Yes. But here's the thing that's tricky, you know, that we have to understand that, you know, he becomes a player coach, but he doesn't win the first season. You know, he doesn't win. So that had to, you know, have people in Boston say, well, he's a great player, but he can't coach, you know. And luckily, he was able to come back and show them the difference that he could be both a great player and a great coach to take his team to three to two championships. You don't really focus a lot on Bill Russell's post-basketball life as a retired man. Uh, what was his life like after he left the game of basketball? Well, he, he leaves the Celtics. He leaves his family. He leaves the city of Boston. He drives to Los Angeles. He gets into TV broadcasting. He does a little couple of movies or TV shows like Miami Vice. You know, he does a talk show. He has his own show. He becomes a, a traveling ambassador for the game, doing lectures around the country. And then he ends up, you know, coaching for 
uh, was it the Sacramento Kings and the Seattle Supersonics. He was successful with one and not so successful with the other. And he basically settled down into a life of where he was a presence at many of these NBA finals, you mm. know, where Bill Russell would be there on the scene. That's why a lot of young players knew who he was, may not have known the extent of how important he was, but they knew who he was. And then at some point in his life, either because he was getting older or someone said to him, you need to make peace with the fam- with the people of Boston mm. and retire your number, per- you know, in person, which he did. And it sort of changed his whole relationship with Boston and how he felt about Boston. We'd be very remiss if we didn't give Bill Russell a piece of the floor. Upon this parquet, you created the championship tradition of the Boston Celtics, and he did. Bill, my question. You know, he had a long life. We had another 30 minutes of material about that whole period, which we cut down. I'm really curious about the 30 minutes that you cut out because there's all these photographs of him playing golf. Um, we, we meet his widow. I mean, did he ever come to sort of reconcile like a lot of his other existential crises he had? Like, for instance, um, his his civil rights fight, his valuing sports and civil rights and, and some of the decisions that he made during that time. Are these all things that he thought about after he retired? Did he talk about those things publicly? I think he did. He, you know, not that I think he did talk about them. You remember he he had a falling out with Will Chamberlain. They they were able to repair that rupture. He was married four times, you know. So we only dealt with the first wife, and we interviewed the last wife. You know, he had a you know intense relationship with his brother, who was a playwright. I mean, he's a fairly complicated guy, you know. And I think for us as filmmakers, we knew that we wanted to understand a little bit about his post career. But we knew that it couldn't, it would never be at the same level as during his playing years and his real major period of his activism. Hmm. So your team got to interview Bill Russell before he passed away, right? Yeah, but he wasn't, you know, Rebecca, he wasn't exactly in the best of health. And even though he gave us some answers, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the same man he had been four or five years ago, which is understandable at his age. Hmm. When he passed away, did it make you rethink how you were going to structure the story? Did you make any changes to the documentary since he was no longer going to be alive? We had to include a sequence that dealt with the death. We hadn't mm-hmm. had that before he passed. So we created a sequence that said at the beginning of the film and then at the end about when they retired his jersey, you know, across all NBA teams. You know, sure, we had to address it. It didn't take long to put it together because there was so much material out there about his passing. It seems like Bill Russell's impact on all of professional sports is multifaceted and important. Have you thought about what we would have missed if he had never come into the NBA? Oh, you know, hindsight is what, 2020? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, you could have, we could say that without a Bill Russell or Will Chamberlain, the NBA wouldn't be what it is today. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, I think that those two men, in the early 60s, set a template that take, took the NBA to being not only was it was always baseball, football, basketball. Mm. Nowadays, if you ask what's America's greatest pastime, it'll probably be a toss up between basketball and football. And baseball is like a distant third. Mm. Sam, your documentary is streaming on Netflix. Millions of people are going to watch it. What are you hoping viewers take away from watching Bill Russell Legend. I hope they get I hope they come away with they should read some books 
and do an even deeper dive into Bill Russell, the athlete, and the man. Well, I certainly did after watching it. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for talking to me about your films. They were truly spectacular, and I really, really love taking that dive myself. My pleasure, Rebecca. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to director Sam Pollard. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 